So we are starting a new series. The series is uh, based on the book of Esther, and we're calling it Stepping Up, uh, because in this book, the people of God have to step up big time to, um, to accomplish the purposes of God that he has for them. Uh, And tonight, I really want to set the scene. I want to give you a little bit of context. I want to bring the book to life a bit for you. Um, And I just want to briefly talk about the major theme of the book and one of the minor themes. So that's what we're trying to do tonight. So I've handed out quite a few Bibles. If anybody else still wants a Bible, please put your hand up. There's a couple at the front here. um, Because we will be looking in detail through chapter one of Esther. If you're struggling to find Esther, open your Bible, smack bang in, the, bang in the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms, and just before Psalms you have Job, and just before that you have Esther. Of course, that doesn't work if you're digital. <laughs> okay, so the book of Esther. This book, in some ways, is quite problematic. It's famous for being the one book of the Bible in which God is not mentioned at all. The name of God is not written in the book of Esther once. In fact, there's very little of any religious practice at all in the book of Esther. There's one mention of prayer and fasting, and that is it. (laughs) Not only that... Um, the heroes of the book are quite flawed. The heroine goes directly against Jewish law by sleeping with and marrying a pagan, a Gentile. And the apparent hero of the story actually probably partially creates the crisis he then has to go on to help solve. Martin Luther hated this book. Along with the book of James, they were the two books of the Bible he wished weren't there. And for the first seven centuries of the history of the church, not one theologian wrote a commentary on the book of Esther. It was not valued very highly. I'm glad that in recent centuries the church has woken up to how amazing this book is. It's very different from a lot of other books in the Bible, and we'll see how. Uh, From from my purposes, it's also quite a problematic book, because just after I'd um, split this book up into sections and sent it out to preachers, I read a commentary that said, it's best not to preach chapter by chapter through the book of Esther. (laughs) Because a lot of the themes in the book of Esther go throughout the book, and it's best to really pick out a theme and then look at how it comes up throughout the book. However... I've done what I've done, so we'll do what we'll do. Um, But it is definitely a book where it's best to have an overview of the whole story. It's quite a short book. It's very easy to read at one sitting. So if you haven't read the book of Esther recently, I would really recommend that this week you go home and you just read all the way through the 10 chapters of Esther uh, and get the whole story in one go. And then you'll start to see some of these themes popping out at you. The basic premise of the book is that 
the people of Israel, now known as Jews since their time in exile, are scattered around the Persian Empire. Some have gone back to Israel to start rebuilding and resettling, but most have stayed in various parts of the Persian Empire. They are a weak people, they are powerless, they have no king, they have no army, they have no temple yet, and they are very, very vulnerable. And in this story, a massive threat arises, which could threaten to destroy all Jewish people everywhere. And just think about that for a minute. If that had happened, Jesus would not have been born in Palestine to a Jewish family. The Jesus who'd been promised already by the prophets. So basically, this threat that arises in the book of Esther, it threatens all of God's plans and promises. And it threatens to destroy his covenant people who he had promised that he would always be with them and that he would protect them. So this is quite a crisis we see here. And it's an amazing story. It's a story actually with a lot of humor in it. I love the humor in it. Uh, and uh, you'll see as we go through. Um, but it is history told in story form, okay? And you do need to remember this. When it's introduced, the book of Esther, in verse 1, it says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. It's introduced in the standard way that a historical book in the Old Testament would be introduced. These are real events. However, what a lot of people have noticed is that in order to make this a story that is accessible as possible for everybody who's hearing it, and the Jews still read this book through every single year in the springtime when they celebrate the festival of Purim, young and old alike all hear this story every year. So to make it as accessible as possible, the author of Esther, who we don't know who it was, um, has actually used a lot of literary devices to make it as exciting as possible to grab your attention and has taken a little bit of poetic license in places that was quite normal for the time doesn't mean it's not true so for example king xerxes that's the name that he goes down in history as and he's mentioned in by other historians like herodotus the greek historian uh, his name in the hebrew form sounds quite like the word for headache. So the author has nicknamed him King Headache. And you'll see he was both a bit of a headache and suffered from quite a few headaches because he did like the booze quite a lot. Little details like that are really hilarious. And there's quite a lot of irony in this story. Sudden reversals of fortune, which you go, whoa, didn't see that coming. But let's have a look through this first chapter and see what we can see. Verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. 
and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present, and for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So this is introducing us to Xerxes. He was 35 years old at the time, recently come to the throne of the greatest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. Uh, the, The Greek historian Herodotus describes him as handsome, ruthless, ambitious, a jealous lover, and ultimately a failure. This Persian empire was massive. It describes here it going from India to Kush. We are talking about from India over in the east right through all of the Middle Eastern countries that we know today, Syria, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, all of those were in the, in the Persian Empire. Parts of Egypt, right down to the, to the Sudan and Ethiopia, even some of the Greek islands. And Xerxes' great ambition was to continue the work that his father and grandfather had done and to invade the mainland of Greece. That was his great ambition. And this banquet that he called basically pulled together leaders from all over his vast empire He was trying to impress them with his wealth. He was trying to show them how powerful he was. He was also planning and preparing for a massive invasion of Greece. And part of this display of wealth was to say, join me and you can share in the plunder too. So this is a political event. This is not just a show-off. This was very deliberately calculated to help him to carry out the next stage of his plan for world domination. The Persians had actually taken over and extended the territory that the Babylonians had had before them. And the Babylonians were the ones who had invaded Jerusalem and Judah and completed the destruction of the nation of Israel which God had put together. It was Nebuchadnezzar who basically burned the temple, destroyed the city, took away most of its inhabitants and left the country to rot. It was Xerxes' grandfather who had actually allowed some Jews to go back and start resettling the land. Not out of the goodness of his heart, the land was unproductive. It was desolate, it was abandoned, That doesn't give you any taxes. So Cyrus had allowed Jews to go back. But as I said, the vast majority had stayed scattered around the empire. And this story is set in the winter capital of the Persian Empire. They wintered here because in the summer, we're talking about southwest Iraq, in the summer it was unbearably hot, so they moved elsewhere. But during the winter months, it was quite a pleasant place to stay in Susa. So we're talking about a party that went on for several months during the winter in southwest Iraq. 
That is where we are located. At a time when there were Jews living in Susa who God was going to use for the next stage of his plan. The Jews were asking themselves at this time, okay, Israel has gone. The glories of the days of David and Solomon have vanished. We're nothing now. We're a ragtag mob of people trying to rebuild some city walls with our bare hands on the sufferance of a pagan king who couldn't care less about us, really. Has God still remembered his promises? I know we were unfaithful, and I know that we rebelled so badly, and we, we, we followed so many of the idolatrous practices of the people around us that God had to punish us, and he told us he would punish us, and we still did it, and he, I know he had to. He did say he would restore us. Is this it? Where are the miracles of the Red Sea? Where's the manna and the quail and the ten plagues and all of that stuff? We've just, we're just dribbling back in dribs and drabs here. Is this really God remembering his promises? Is this God really being faithful to us? And what about all those Jews who haven't even bothered coming back? Are they still part of God's people? Is he still faithful to them? Are they still part of it all? These were the questions that God's people were asking themselves at this time. And by contrast, you have this amazing, splendid, glorious king with almost unlimited power and wealth. So this is what is happening. If we carry on having a look further in the chapter, we can see things unfolding further. Verse 5. When these days were over, the 180, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. This was the party to end all parties. This was probably a thank you party for the local people in the citadel of Susa who had worked so hard over the previous 180 days servicing all these foreign lot who'd come to party. And all the customs of the time were overturned. Normally you couldn't drink any more than the king drank, although I think that would have been quite difficult in Xerxes' case. Um, but here, the rules were relaxed, and uh, they'd actually been told you can drink as much as you like. Go for it. <laughs> and meanwhile, there was a ladies' night in elsewhere in the palace going on, hosted by the queen. 
We are talking about a lot of drunk people, folks. An awful lot of very drunk people. Making the most of it. And that includes the king. Persians had a very interesting way of making decisions. They actually believed that to get drunk, to get intoxicated, brought you closer to the spiritual world. So they would quite often deliberately make important decisions of state when they were drunk. They would then actually confirm their decisions when they were sober. And if they still agreed with it, they'd go ahead. And sometimes they did it around the other way around. Sometimes they'd make a decision while they were sober, and then they would get drunk and confirm whether or not they were going to go ahead with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And this is what we see in this chapter, actually. It is what we see in this chapter. So we've had three feasts already. Feasts are a big theme in this book. Verse 10, it all starts to kick off. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and I'll spare you the names, Sarah, to bring him before, before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times, hint of irony there, and were closest to the king. And again, I'll spare you the names. These were the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So, what we have is Queen Vashti, for her own reasons, I don't think it's difficult to guess, uh, refused to obey the king's summon to come and be ogled by a whole load of drunk men just in order that the king can show off his prize possession. This whole thing is about a display of his wealth and splendor, and she is the jewel in the crown. She is the ultimate trophy wife. And she says no. Now, Vashti's refusal is not explained. It's also not commented on. But people over the years have seen this in very different ways. So in the early years of the church, Vashti was held up as an example of willful, willful, stubborn rebellion in a wife. She was seen as a bad woman who refused to obey her husband and a warning to all good Christian women of how not to behave. In more recent years, she's been held up as a feminist heroine who has refused to take part in a degrading spectacle that has been instituted by a patriarchal system. Go Vashti. 
Sam, I should think there's quite a few women in the room just now going, yeah. <laughs> I like her. She's my kind of woman. But it's quite important that we don't impose our own views and our own cultural norms on this text. Seeing the book as a whole, there's not a point being made here about feminism. The point is that there is a king who thinks he has absolute power and he's relying on an empire to believe that. That's the only way you can run an empire, if people buy into the myth. And here, a woman has shown that he can't control even his own wife. How is he going to command their support and loyalty for an invasion that will cost lives and money if he cannot even get his own wife to do what he asks her to do? I don't think this is a personal issue. I think it was a political marriage and I think it was a political issue for him. She'd made him look bad, though. It was a huge dent to his ego and to his image. And that really mattered. He's now in a drunken rage. He's been thwarted. And he wants a solution. So here we have his advisors. What happens? Verse 16. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than she. And then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. And the text doesn't tell us how that worked out. This is ridiculous advice. It reflects badly on them, and it reflects badly on the king who trusted them. They blew this one incident up out of all proportion, and they ensured that everybody in the empire knew all about what Vashti had done. And that was the very thing they were trying to avoid. And they were not only that, they were trying to put in place, by brute force, an order which was bound to be highly counterproductive. When you are told you have to respect somebody, 
that you have to obey them, whether it's a teacher or a parent or a husband or wife. You might end up doing it if you have to. But the respect will only be on the outside, won't it? I think our Prime Minister is learning that sometimes forcing your way through can be a bit counterproductive in some ways. Respect is not something you can order people to have. And this sets up the major theme of Esther for us. There are people in this world who think they have the power. They take pride in that power. And here I'm not having a political dig at the Prime Minister. They abuse that power in order to ram through their own desires without thinking of anybody else and what and their needs. It's a way of them dealing with their own insecurities. I'd like to know what was going on in Memekan's household if he thought this was going to inspire all women to run riot. And these people are not as powerful as they think. The book of Esther is all about saying, look at this splendor and this wealth. This man thought he could do anything. The people reading the book of Esther, after it was written down, would have been chuckling to themselves already. Four years later, Xerxes did his big invasion of Greece. He had massive numbers in his army, and he lost. He came back defeated. It was highly costly, and in fact the Persians never managed to successfully invade Greece. What the book of Esther says, that even without any miraculous incidents, there's not a single miracle in the book of Esther. God is at work all the time to bring about his plans. There are an awful lot of coincidences in the book of Esther, and the author leaves it up to us to read between the lines and see that even when it isn't spectacular, and even when it's people who don't even believe in God themselves, God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. You know, if we feel powerless at times, if we feel vulnerable, if we feel that we have messed up too many times for God to keep those promises that he made to us, the book of Esther says no one is more powerful than God. No circumstance, no threat, no power in this world is greater than God. And he was at work to bring about what he wants to accomplish. If the Jews had been wiped out, God would have been proved to have been faithless. So they weren't. Through ordinary people with flawed lives, through a series of happenstances in a foreign country, ruled by an emperor, a king, who did not acknowledge God, God 
did what he wanted to do. And that's something we can all hang on to. This first chapter of Esther sets up Xerxes because God is about to bring him down. God is about to show him who is God. God is sovereign and he will do what he wants to do. And that's what we can hang on to. And very quickly, the minor theme, and I think the author of Esther is interested in this, is that in a godless society, men think they can command the respect and obedience of women without giving them respect in return. It's part of a godless world. The culture Esther lived in And we haven't met her yet, have we? It didn't have respect for women. It didn't allow women many rights. And it did demand obedience from them. Esther was a gender stereotype. She was chosen for a position because of her beauty. She was groomed to please a man sexually. That's all she was valued for. Vashti had been the same until she said no more. Genesis 3.16 tells us that the ongoing battle between the sexes and the devaluing of women is part of the consequences of the fall. It is not God's plan for the relationship between men and women. And yet we see it played out in every generation, don't we? Pornography is a big part of it. Fashion and the beauty and cosmetic injuries, uh, industries are part of it. I think a lot of the fairly dangerous gender ideology we're seeing right now is a reaction to it. I think abuse and violence and exploitation and failed relationships are symptoms of it. One of the most important things I think Christian fathers can do, and Christian men in general, is to engender respect for women in their sons and in, young, in the young men of the church. And I think it's a battle. I think this generation is saying we don't want to be put into a box because of our gender. We don't want to be treated worse because of our gender. So therefore, let's get rid of gender. Let's just treat people as people and forget that there are two sexes. And I think that's folly. It's denying the way God has made us. There are differences between the sexes. But I understand the heart behind it. The heart behind it is to say, let's try something different. And while I don't agree with that, I do agree that we need to remember that Christ came to defeat all the purposes of the evil one and the work of the evil one. I think the devaluing of women and I think the battle between the sexes that gets played out 
in many marriages, let's be honest, and in society as whole. I think they are part of the consequences of the fall which Christ came to reverse, to give a new way for men and women to relate to one another. Esther went on a journey from being a sex object to becoming a national leader. She starts off very much at the mercy of powerful men and even influential men in her own life. By the end of it, she's an equal partner almost. And she shows us a little bit of how, without trying to um, destroy men, a woman can actually be part of the purposes of God and be fulfilled in who she is. The men in uh, Vashti and Esther's time thought you could command respect and obedience by brute force. In Ephesians 5, we see a different way, don't we? We see that we're all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we see that if women are meant to respect and submit, it's on the basis of the fact that they are being loved sacrificially. There was an evangelical theologian who said, when I'm worthy of my wife's respect, she gives it to me. And when I'm not, she doesn't. My job is to be worthy of it. I think if you're a female here tonight and you feel that you've been put down by men, you've been undervalued by men, you've been pigeonholed, or you've been treated and valued only for sex, then that is not God's will for you. God values you as much as any individual ever. He died for you. He he died to make things better between men and women, as well as between himself and men and women. And as a church, I think we are called to model something different to the world. Respect for one another, submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. All in the context of knowing that our God is sovereign. And that no matter how long it takes, no matter how it happens, he will work out his purposes. And that is part of it. So the book of Esther is interesting, isn't it? (laughs) Raises a lot of interesting issues for us. I pray as we go through it, we will really be alive to the word of God. This is the inspired word of God. And when we read it in context with all the other rest of the inspired word of God, he can speak to us here, right here, right now. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you and repent of our wrong attitudes. We want to repent of the fact that we often do not trust you enough, as Tammy was talking about, that we do not really believe sometimes that you are sovereign in our lives, that we do not see your hand at work in the ordinary events, that we do not recognize the providence of God 
working out his purposes. We're sorry that we're so easy, easily um, fearful, that we so easily question your commitment to us. Help us to look, to look with those spiritual eyes and see you at work through the ordinary events of life as well as through the miraculous. And Lord, we also repent of where our relationships with the opposite sex have not been honouring to you. Lord, when you were here on earth, you respected women more than any man around. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we will model something different from the world. Help us to really respect one another and submit to one another out of our reverence for you. Help us to each fulfill that God-given potential without the need to put anybody else down. And Lord, I just thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you can use the most powerless and the most weak of individuals. I thank you that through history you've been faithful to your promises and you are still. And I thank you, Lord, that in the gospel we have the greatest reversal of fortunes ever seen on earth. That the man they thought they'd killed rose and showed that he was God and changed history. We thank you, Lord, that you are unstoppable unstoppable and help us to live as if you are in jesus name amen